Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. My name is Josh McQuaid. I'm the assistant pastor here, and it really is a privilege uh, to be able to look at God's word with you this morning. So thank you for being here. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. Uh, If you brought your own copy of the Bible, you can uh, find that now, or you can find it in the bulletin. Uh, But take a minute and find that. If you would, while you're doing that, let me just say, as always, that it's great to have you here. We know, like always, there are a million different places that you could be this morning. Uh, You could be traveling back from spring break, as I'm sure lots of people are, uh, or you could be at home lighting all of your good luck orange on fire and wondering, does it really work? I thought it worked, but it didn't work. Um, Sorry, we're all peacocks now, right? or, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, or you could be down at the Tennessee Theater getting ready for Brian Regan tonight, uh, who I think is going to be brushing off all of his best jokes from the early 2000s. Maybe he's got some new stuff, but uh, anyway, you could be doing all those things, but you're not. Uh, instead, you're here with us, and as great as spring break is, and as great as basketball is, as great as Brian Regan is, uh, we really are glad that you're here with us this morning, because there really is no better place that you could be than to be here considering God's word with us, worshiping Jesus with us, considering what it means that Jesus is one worthy of worship. So thank you for being here with us and welcome to Redeemer. Well, what is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. What that means is that we are a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbors. Uh, And what we believe most fundamentally is that Jesus is God, as we're going to consider this morning, that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to die for our sins, to show us the mercy of the Father. And so what we do here together every week is we come to rest in his love, to learn to rest again and again in the mercy that God has shown us in Jesus. And then as we leave here, we don't just stop thinking about Jesus, but we continue to gather together. We uh, watch basketball together. We read the Bible together. We pray together so that as we go out from here, we can continue to remind one another of the mercy and of the love that God has shown us in Jesus. Uh, And as we rest in God's love and mercy, as we remind one another of God's love and mercy, we then delight to turn in service to our neighbors here in Urban and University Knoxville um, and to serve all over the city so that we can reflect the love of Jesus to our friends. So that's who we are. We're a community of people trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbors as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect the love and the mercy of the Father. And so as we are going through this season of Lent, we're being helped in all these things right now by this series uh, that we're calling Words from the Cross. And we're considering the final words of Jesus that he spoke on the cross. And so today we come to Mark 15, and we're going to consider these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let's read these verses. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word. We do pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts, that you would open my mouth. Uh, We pray that you would take your word and that you would plant it down deep in us, that you would make us more like Jesus and that you would bear your fruit in our lives, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to start with a question, uh, not an Abbott Brothers quote, uh, though we've had a little bit of a trend with that. I want to start with a question. The question is this, what do you think God is like? What do you imagine God to be like? Um, I want to specifically ask you to think about how do you imagine God to be different than me and you? The reason I want to start with this question is that it seems to me that one thing that's true of humans is uh, almost universally, wherever you find us in history, wherever you find us in the world, we almost universally tend to imagine that God is just like us, or pretty much like us. He might be bigger than us. He might be stronger than us. Maybe he's a little less mortal than us, but God is pretty much like us. Um, I was reminded of this this week when I was reading a book that's about the ancient world, and the author was talking about uh, many of the gods of the ancient world. Uh, You would know many of these gods. You would know the Greek god Zeus. You would know the Roman gods Jupiter and Mars and Neptune and really all the planets. Um, Maybe you've heard of the Babylonian god Marduk or the Egyptian god Osiris. But one of the things that's true of all of these gods and many others, too, is that they were basically thought to be pretty much like me and you. There are lots of us, and so there are lots of them. They marry, they have children, they kill, they get hungry, and so they have to eat. They get thirsty, and so they have to drink. They get angry, and they're jealous, just like we're jealous. They hold grudges, they go to war, they take advantage of one another, and they take advantage of people. They're pretty much just like us. Um, And, you know, at one level, we can look at the ancient world and we can say, well, that's back then. Uh, We're smarter now. We're so different now, but I don't think we're so different. I think we also imagine that God is pretty much the way that we are. Um, And so one of the ways that we experience this is uh, when we think about God, we imagine that God probably cares about the things that I care about. Uh, We imagine that God, if he was going to vote, would probably vote the way that I would vote. We imagine that God feels about my enemies the way that I feel about my enemies. And so we, just like ancient people have always done, we imagine that God cares about what we care about. We imagine that God is like us in his disposition towards us and towards the world. But I think that if if we could boil down the Bible to one point, that's a big claim. (laughs) There's maybe a lot of ways that we could do that. Uh, But I think one way that we could do that is to say this. God as he really is, as he makes himself known to us in the Bible, as he makes himself known to us in Jesus, God is very rarely the kind of God that you or I would expect him to be. As God makes himself known to us, God is incredibly surprising. 
And as we get to know him in his word, and as we get to know him in Jesus, what we find is that he's almost entirely unlike us. Think about just one really simple example. When God uh, takes his people for himself in the Old Testament, uh, he doesn't look out over the world and say, who's the biggest, who's the richest, who's the most powerful, the most beautiful. But he reaches in and he grabs a people who are small and a people who are oppressed, a people who are poor and enslaved. And he says, you're my people. You're going to be mine. And when he reaches out to us to save us, he doesn't save uh, people who are noble and rich and powerful and wise and righteous, but he saves me <laughs> and he saves you. Paul says when he's talking to the Corinthians, but he could be talking to us, not many of you were wise when God saved you. And this is shocking to us. We don't imagine that God would be this way, but as we read the Bible, what we find again and again is that God is surprising. And so I think what we see here in Mark 15 is just one more example of how surprising God is, how God, again, turns out to be not the way that we would have imagined him. Um, and, you know, I think if we don't find these verses surprising, I think one of the reasons that we might not is maybe we've just read them so much and so they've become so familiar to us. Uh, or maybe uh, we encounter these verses and we just haven't really let them sink in and so they don't strike us as surprising. But this morning what I hope we'll do is we'll slow down and we'll hear these verses again or maybe for the first time and we'll be able to see again how God is so unlike the way that we would have imagined him to be. And I want us to see that in two ways this morning. The, they're, they're simple. Uh, I hope they're, they're beautiful for you in their simplicity. But what I want you to see this morning is this. God is surprising in that where we expect God to be full of vengeance, God is full of mercy. And where we expect God to run from us or to drive us away or to keep us at a distance, God draws near. So at the cross, God shows mercy, and at the cross, God draws near. Draws near. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's think about first how God shows mercy. Um, I think, first of all, uh, the fact that God shows mercy, we should probably say, is maybe one of the most surprising things of all that we learn in the Bible. And this might be surprising for us, uh, especially if we know a little bit of the Bible. Right? Because if you know a little bit of the Bible, then you might think first about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and how God uh, made a garden and he put them in it and they ate, the tree, ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from and so God drove them out of the garden. Or maybe you think a little bit later on, you think about how God gives his law to his people and he says, this is my law, this is what you have to do. Keep it and you'll be blessed. Don't keep it and you'll be punished. Or maybe we think about Matthew 5, 48, where Jesus tells us that we are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. So if we know a little bit about the Bible and we think about these verses, then we might find it really surprising to think that God is really a God of mercy. But the truth is that even with all of these things, and actually because of these things, God's mercy is all over the Bible. Even if you just think back to those stories, remember when Adam and Eve sin and God drives them out of the garden, what does he also say? He says to the serpent, the day is going to come when I will raise up a seed of a woman and he will crush your head. So even from the beginning, God is saying to the enemy and God is saying to us, I am going to move and I'm going to show mercy and I'm going to save my people. And remember, when God gives his law to his people, he doesn't just give them the law. He also tells them about himself. 
He tells us who he is. And so he says in Exodus 33 that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what is God saying? He's saying, I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God that's slow to anger. I uphold justice, but I extend mercy. And you know, some of the things that we think about in the Old Testament that seem so foreign to us, maybe you think about the temple, maybe you think about the sacrifices, these two are just manifestations of God's mercy to us. Because what God does in the temple and what God does in the sacrifices is he creates a system whereby the sin that I rightly bring on myself doesn't fall on me to crush me. But he creates a way that an intermediary can come, a lamb, a bull, a dove. And the sacrifice of that animal can take the guilt that should have fallen on me. And so mercifully in that moment, the blood of the sacrifice stands in for my blood. And so what God is doing is he's creating a system of mercy so that he can be near to us and so that we can be near to him. And I think, (coughs) excuse me, I think even uh, that, that system of sacrifices is what we see so clearly. The merciful system of sacrifices in the Old Testament is how we see so clearly God's mercy in Mark 15. You see it right at the very beginning. Uh, right in verse 33 when he says, when the sixth hour had come, and I know that sounds life-changing, that sounds earth-shattering, the sixth hour. Why is he telling us about the time? Well, the reason he's telling us about the time is because even though that doesn't mean much to you and me, if you knew the system of the temple and if you knew the system of sacrifices, then you knew at this precise hour, this is when the evening sacrifice for sin is being offered over in the temple. And so what Mark is saying is at the very hour that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people had been faithfully, full of faith, coming to God with the sacrifice that he had invited them to bring, at that very hour, God provides his own sacrifice. At that very hour, Jesus goes to the cross and takes our sin for us. And so now in this moment, what Mark is telling us is just as this system had been set up, that you could take me at my word, that this sacrifice makes a way for me and you to be reconciled, but it has to be done again and again and again. At this very moment, God provides one sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice to cover all of our sins forever because he wants to show mercy And I think it's really important for us to understand what's happening uh, in in these verses, what's happening in the cross. And so to help us see it, I want to take you to another spot in the New Testament, just really briefly. I want you to think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, this is what's happening here in Mark chapter 15. The Son of God, just like the Old Testament sacrifices, is taking all of our guilt and taking all of our sin, and he who had no sin is being made sin, so that we can take his place and be those who are righteous. He is fully taking our shame and our guilt and our suffering, and he's taking it where it belongs, down to death, where it'll never rise again. 
You know, I think sometimes we get a little bit confused about the substitution language that Jesus takes our place and that we take his. And I think sometimes we imagine this to be like that, that great scene in the old Indiana Jones movie where Harrison Ford kind of takes the, he takes the idol and he replaces it with the sandbag, right? He moves it really fast. And there's that moment where you think, did it work? You know, did the, did the sleight of hand work? Did he trick, you know, whatever, the, is it a machine? Is it the gods? Whatever, did he trick them into substituting? And so I think sometimes we think that's what's happening at the cross, that there's been some trick, that there's been some sleight of hand. But what I want you to see is when Mark ties this to the Old Testament sacrifices, what he's saying is there's no trick here. This is the system that God set up forever. This is the system whereby God could take your sin and put it on another. And the system that we had before was, uh, was flawed, it was temporary, but in Jesus, we have a true substitution to actually take our sins. And so, uh, what we see in Jesus on the cross is that he is crushed just as our sin should have crushed us. So look at verse 34, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I want you to think about for this minute here is what Jesus is experiencing when he cries out these words. Uh, in John's gospel, the first chapter, he says this. He says that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so one of the things that John and Mark are wanting you to see is that the anguish that Jesus is experiencing here is an anguish that's unlike anything you or I will ever experience in the world. Because Jesus uh, made the world. He made the mountain that he's being crucified on. He made the people who are killing him. He made the disciples who have abandoned him. And so there's a human suffering that Jesus is going through that is completely surpasses everything that you or I will ever experience. But there's something else that's going on too. It's not just this human suffering that Jesus endures. Uh, again, think of John chapter one, where John also tells us that in the beginning, the word was with God. And the word was God. So the Father and the Son forever and eternity and forever and forever are together. But at this moment, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he has so fully taken your sin and mine that a rift has occurred where no rift belongs, even between the Father and the Son. And this is amazing. <laughs> this is uh, confusing. It's confounding. Like, this is a, a mystery that Bible scholars and theologians and pastors uh, still argue about. What does this mean here? Um, and I can't claim to answer it for you, but here's what I think we can say this morning. God made you to live with him. And he made you to live under his rule and his reign and for that life to be good. But instead, you and I run from God. We build up a barrier between ourselves and God because we love ourselves. We love our sin. And so we give ourselves to those things instead of to God. And so isn't it true that in big ways and in little ways, every single one of us know what it is to be far from God? We know what it means to feel that he's forsaken us, but in our sin, we're the ones that have forsaken him. And sometimes we experience this distance from God, not just through the sin that we commit, but just through the brokenness of our world that comes from sin. So think about the diagnosis of some disease that comes. The disease that you know does not belong in God's good world because God did not make his world. 
for that disease. And in that moment, uh, we know what it is to live in a world that's full of brokenness and full of death and full of sin. When our loved one dies, we know what it means to feel that God has forsaken us. Uh, When we think about our own struggles with sin and sins that we wish would just go away, (laughs) we wish that God would just deliver us from them. When we think about innocent men and women and children caught up in a war that they didn't ask for. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus cries out with is he cries out with our words. He cries out with the words of our brokenness that we experience in the world. And so what's happening here is Jesus is taking upon himself, just as that Old Testament sacrifice, all of that brokenness, all of that distance from God. And so just as God said, look to the sacrifices, now he's saying, look to Jesus. This is the good news of the cross. (laughs) This is the good news of God's mercy for us. But I know uh, that this is a message that strikes many of us in many different ways. And so let me just address two common ways that sometimes we hear these words. I think sometimes we hear the truth of Jesus being substituted in our place and we think, that's not fair. Uh, You should pay for your sin. I should pay for my sin. And you're right, I should pay for my sin. Uh, You should pay for your sin. The, The great substitute that God offers to us feels so unfair because that's not how the world works for us in our experience. But I want you to think about it this way. If I pay for all my sin, always, and there's no way for me not to, if you pay for your sin, always, and there's no way for you not to, we've now created a world where there's only justice and there's never any mercy. Can you imagine the weight of that world for us? I have to parent my children with mercy. If I don't show mercy to my children, they'll never live. I have to expect and ask that my my children will show mercy to me when I fail them. Our world requires mercy. If all we have is a world where it's only justice all the time, our world collapses. But I think some of us think about the substitute uh, of, of Jesus taking our place, and maybe we don't get hung up on, uh, on the fairness of it. Maybe we just get hung up on the fact that it feels so cruel. Uh, it feels so barbaric, and maybe from a, an earlier uh, generation. How can God really say that, uh, that the wages of sin is death? Who could really believe this? Well, what I want you to hear in this is if the previous example was a way that we would have only justice and no mercy, what I want you to see here is this is a way of imagining the world that has all mercy and no justice. And we also can't live in this world. We know that we, wicked people have to be punished for their wickedness. We hope that this is true. Sometimes that's true for us. But we need a world where there's both mercy and justice. And so what we long for is where these two things can come together, where justice and justice can be satisfied, but mercy also can be offered. And what we see in these verses is that the only way that justice and mercy can come together is for God himself to offer a sacrifice for us. If I pay for my sin, I am crushed. I need mercy. But if there is no payment, then it's just mercy and it's just chaos and it's not justice. The theologian Fleming Rutledge uh, put it this way. I think it was really beautiful. She says, here on the cross, God is submitting to God's own wrath. 
No other mode of execution would have been commensurate with the enormity of the dark powers holding us in bondage. What she's saying here, I think, is that uh, only the sacrifice of Jesus was deep enough and profound enough to deal with the scale of our sin, the scale of our bondage to brokenness. Only God taking our sin can save us from our sin. And so this is what we hear when Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we hear is God extending mercy to us. We hear God taking our sin and bringing it to death. So in these verses, I I hope you see that God has shown us mercy. Um, But I think you'll also see, I I want you to also see that God has not just shown mercy, but that he's also drawn very near to us, very personally. And I think we've seen that a little bit as we've thought about these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I want to take you to another place in these verses where I think we see the nearness of God. Uh, Look at verse 37, when Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Um, I think the, the tearing of the curtain is probably a symbol that doesn't need a whole lot of explaining for us. Uh, we sort of all know what curtains do. If you've been on an airplane, you know that the curtain between first class and business class and the curtain between business class and cattle class, the rest where we all sit, uh, the curtain is there to tell you, you belong over there. You stay outside. Other people come back in here. You stay over there. And the curtain in the temple is sort of doing the same way. It's sort of doing the same thing. It's communicating to us where we belong. So there's certain spaces in the temple that we can't go into, and the curtains are telling us that. But in the temple, it's a little different. It's not about uh, that certain people belong here and certain people belong there. What's really happening in the temple is that God has created a way that uh, he can have healthy distance, safe distance between himself and his holiness and his people and their sinfulness. Because remember, in in the Old Testament, uh, there's all these stories of how God breaks out against his people and their sinfulness. You probably remember some of these. Um, But I think sometimes we hear these stories and we think, oh, God's like an angry parent. He's flown off the handle. He's lost his temper. But what we, we miss is that what the Old Testament is actually setting up for us is that God's holiness and man's sinfulness are like hydrogen and fire. When they touch, you can't stop it. It's just going to blow up. There's no way to control it. And so what God has done with this system of the temple and the sacrifices and the curtains is he's he's created a way to create space for man to live with God. He's created space to protect his people so that they could live near to him. But remember what was also true of the sacrifices that we've just talked about. The temple sacrifices were temporary. They were there for a time. They were there until God would come and provide the real sacrifice, the final sacrifice in Jesus. And so when the temple curtain tears after Jesus' death, this is God's way of saying, the only sacrifice that I ever need, I've gotten. I've received it. And so all of that system that was meant to keep us apart, it's now gone away. And I am now yours, and you are now mine, and we are now near to one another. See, the tearing of the curtain is God's answer to the question, was the sacrifice of Jesus good enough? Which I think is a question that we all ask in different ways. Was it good enough for me? Is it good enough to really forgive me? And the tearing of the curtain screams at us that the sacrifice of Jesus was enough. God has had all that he needs to forgive. So what does this mean for all of us. Uh, 
Um, well, I want to take us back really briefly here at the end to uh, the place that we started. I want us to ask the question, how does this change the way that we think about God? How does this change the way that we imagine that we relate to him? Um, see, I think if God was just like us, there's no way that God would extend mercy to us to the extent that he tells us that he has shown us mercy. We can't conceive of a God who would identify with our sin and who would pay for it himself. We can't imagine that this would be true. We can't imagine a God who would pay the price for our guilt uh, and take it down to death for us. And so for many of us, we can imagine the cross being a lot of different things. We could imagine the cross being uh, this powerful picture of the, of the power of sin, the destructive power of sin. Or we could imagine the cross being an expiring example that we should follow, uh, that we should give ourselves away as Jesus has given himself away for us. And these things are true to one, at one level as far as they go. But what I don't want you to miss, what I want you to see here in Mark 15 is that what, what Mark is saying is that the cross is not just a symbol. It's not just a picture. The cross is a moment in history when God actually did something, where God actually reached in and provided a sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. This is a moment in history where God acted to save and to show us mercy. And so what he does is he invites us to look at Jesus and believe. Just as his Old Testament people always looked at the sacrifices and believed God's word that this is good enough, we look at Jesus and we believe that he'll save us. I think one other thing that this does for us as well is that it invites us to think about the world a little differently. Um, I don't know about you, but I think that maybe the most fundamental truth of the world that many of us believe, I think that I believe left to myself, is that retribution is usually right. Sinner needs to be punished. Uh, justice needs to be served. God doesn't look the other way uh, at justice, but also what we've seen here is that God shows mercy. And so one of the things that we're being invited to consider as we look at Mark 15 today and we think about what God does on the cross is that we're being asked to consider, might it be that God has actually made the world differently than we think it is? Might it be that God's actual foundation in the world is his mercy shown to us, not retribution? And so what does it mean for us to move out into the world with one another and with our neighbors, with our children? Uh, with people who break God's law, what does it mean for us to be people who pour out mercy, who extend mercy, who don't forgive once or seven times, but 77 times? What does it mean for us to be people who have received Jesus' mercy and so then share it with those around us? See, I think the picture that we have in Mark 15 is of God's mercy and of him drawing really near to us. And that is also the picture that we have at this table that we'll come to in just a minute. Because here at the table, we have, again, the picture of God's mercy that he has shown us in Jesus. Because here we have Jesus's body, and we have Jesus's blood that bore our sin on the cross. And here, God puts them into our hands to assure us that his mercy is as real as the bread in our mouth and as the wine on our tongues. God is near to us. He's even nearer to us than the elements that are on this table. And so as we come to the table and as we take these elements, we lift up our eyes to the one in whom we believe. And we come to him filled with faith, knowing that God has shown us mercy and that he will show us mercy, that he is near to us and he will never leave us.